Sean Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hello, how are you? No need to answer because this isn't live and I can't hear you. Though I do hope you are well as you embark upon this latest episode of the Rasafari Podcast. Speaking of the podcast, don't forget to click subscribe if you haven't already. Then, once you're subscribed, make sure you leave a five-star rating for this podcast. If you're willing to spare about 20 seconds of your time, you could also write a review for the show along with that five-star rating. Those two things greatly help people find the podcast, meaning more people will get to hear about the amazing work being done at zoos, aquariums, rescues, rehabs, and conservation organizations all around the world. Also, remember that you can support the podcast by visiting www.patreon.com slash rossafari or by checking out my merch at rossafari.redbubble.com. Also, make sure you're following along on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari, and that you check out Rossafari.com from time to time. So, according to every third post on my Instagram feed, we have officially entered the time known as Spooky Season, which some people feel the need to abbreviate as Spooky SZN. Hey, no judgment. I have decided to fully embrace the spirit of the season, so after today's episode, the rest of my October episodes are going to be a three-part series, The Rasafari Spooky Spectacular. My good friends at Elmwood Park Zoo invited me to visit and meet some of the most iconic Halloween animals, including bats, snakes, owls, and turtles. Oh, okay. Turtles aren't iconic Halloween animals, but when two turtle lovers get into a room together, sometimes the conversation drifts away from the scary stuff. Along with the aforementioned animals, as anyone who is caught up on the podcast knows, I have struggled with horrible arachnophobia my entire life. Earlier this year, however, I committed to attempting to meet and even handle a tarantula. Well, what better time to try that than during spooky season? So, the final episode of the Rasafari Spooky Spectacular will be all about tarantulas and will include my attempt to overcome my greatest fear. Did I succeed? Did I scream like a baby? Do spiders actually have small flamethrowers they use to attack people, thus making my arachnophobia completely rational after all? Tune in to find out. Before all that seasonal craziness, however, I'm excited to bring you today's episode. If you like bird stories, today is your lucky day, because this whole episode is about birds. Speaking of luck, my grandmother on my mom's side, who I called Nanny, always used to tell me that if a bird pooped on you, it was good luck. As a matter of fact, one time, when we were visiting Atlantic City, a seagull pooped on me, and she insisted that I not clean it off, because we were going to casinos and I needed all the luck I could get. On one hand, I walked around with bird crap on me all day. On the other hand, I did win a couple hundred bucks, so I guess it worked. Anyway, you're getting all the luck without any of the poop, 
except for the Rasafari poop story, of course, because today I'm bringing you an interview with Danny Poirier, who is the curator of birds and training at Southwick's Zoo in Massachusetts. Danny has some incredible stories, including sharing about the experience of hand-raising an unexpected kookaburra. She also has an incredible heart for conservation and a passion for her job that is infectious. As a matter of fact, Danny did this interview with me despite being in the midst of final preparations for her wedding, which has since taken place. Congrats to Danny and her new husband, Paul. Okay, get ready for bad puns, great information, and lots of laughs with Danny Poirier of Southwick's Zoo. All right, Danny, tell me, who are you, where do you work, and what do you do there? So thank you for having me. First of all, I'm so excited to be talking to you tonight. Um, so yeah, my name is Danny Poirier. I work at Southwick's Zoo. It's a privately owned facility in southeastern Massachusetts in the little town of Menden. Um, it has been a privately owned facility since 1965, owned by the Brewer family. Um, my official title is Curator of Birds in Training, but a lot of people kind of informally know me as the head bird trainer or the head ambassador bird keeper as well. Um, my list of tasks throughout the day is really extensive. I do a lot at the zoo. So everything from basic husbandry and, you know, health checks with all of our birds all the way up to doing shows. We do have quite a few different shows that we offer at our facility. So I kind of get like every single little aspect of zookeeping in one. Um, I get to be the leader of the team. I get to take care of the birds. I get to do the shows. I get to do informal education and formal education. I, you know, implement training projects with our birds. I oversee staff. I actually also run the zoo's parakeet aviary. So we have an aviary with about 160 parakeets, four cockatiels. It's a really interactive experience for visitors to come in, feed the birds, learn about them. So I oversee and manage that as well. So I have, you know, quite an extensive, uh, wide variety uh, of things in my day and things that I do. And it's very fulfilling. That's really amazing. That's so cool. <laughs> so um, I'm curious, before we get to the birds, what's it like being in a leadership role while also um, you know, being on the ground as a keeper and, and doing kind of both sides of that. Yeah, it's, it's actually really not easy. It's really difficult. I do enjoy being a leader. I don't always enjoy some of the more difficult parts. I don't really like necessarily being a boss and, you know, making those decisions in the moment just because I have felt a lot of pressure and a lot of weight on my shoulders. Of course, it's all worth it in the end. And, you know, I've, as a leader, I've made mistakes. I've um, tried to encourage my staff to, you know, also make mistakes and use them as learning opportunities. And it can be really, really challenging to kind of wear both hats, you know. So it it's definitely very fulfilling very difficult at the same time, but I do, I do definitely enjoy it. But yeah, overall, lots of work, lots of pressure. And it's not, it's definitely not always easy. 
Yeah, no doubt. I um, I am uh, the music director as well as an actor and drummer in my show, and it mm. sometimes leads to a little bit of conflict internally. Um, yeah. Even for myself, there are times that I, I have a thought as a music director and a thought as a drummer that contradict each other, and I have to make sure that my boss, which is me, is controlling what I'm doing. And you know, it's yeah, yeah it can be tricky. So I get that. That's that's yeah, it's really hard. It's difficult. It's really difficult going back and forth, like you said, getting stuck in your head. Uh, you always have that thought in the back of your mind, am I making the right decision? And especially in a position where a lot of times you're making decisions for animals. So you're always wondering if it's enough, if what you're doing is enough, and you want to make sure that you feel and look confident in front of your team. But at the same time, I think there's like a little, there's, you know, a really nice aspect to vulnerability and making sure that your team understands that you do have a lot of weight on your shoulders and you are going to make mistakes. And I think it's important for them to see that. So it's hard, but it's very worth it. <laughs> no, I agree. I definitely think um, one of the biggest ways that I've learned to grow as a leader over years is learning to say I'm wrong and learning to say I'm sorry. Yeah. And, and that was really like baby, baby leader John was just like, no, no, I'm no, I was right. And now I have no yeah. problem looking at somebody and being like, yeah, oh, I screwed that one up. That one's on me, guys. Sorry. Uh, my bad. Absolutely. And, um, it forms better bonds. You know, I think yeah. that's, that's a good thing. All right. Enough about this human crap. Let's talk about <laughs> some birds. Um, yes. So tell me just kind of as an overview, I, I realize that mm -hmm. that birds is a very big kind of catch all term um, mm -hmm. for a large variety of species. But what is a bird? Oh, my God, you're really putting me on the spot here. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, typically a bird is, you know, an animal that has feathers. A lot of times they lay eggs. They are warm-blooded, uh, but typically being characterized by their ability to form and have some type of feather uh, element, uh, you know, to their bodies. Um, so a lot of people make the mistake and say like, oh, birds fly. And obviously we know that's not the case for all bird species. Um, you know, we have to think about our ratites, our ostriches and our emus and cassowaries and things like that. So not, not all birds fly. It's not really something we can say. But another thing we do like to talk about is how they are descendants of dinosaurs. We kind of joke all the time about how we work with dinosaurs every day. And that makes the job sound a lot more interesting <laughs> than if we just say we work with birds. <laughs> So, you know, their evolutionary history is really just fascinating. Uh, there's, like you said, there are, there's just such a variety. It's impossible to know them all. People come at me with questions about certain species all the time. And half the time I'll be like, what did you just say? A what? There's just so many birds. There's, you know, 10,000 different species. It's impossible to know them all, but they're fascinating. I love the ones that I work with. I feel very privileged to work with them. They're a challenge, especially from a training perspective and a behavioral perspective. But yeah, birds are just, they're really cool. I just have, I do have a lot to say, but I won't, I won't bore you. That's fair. Although this is a podcast where, you know, the That's goal true. is to have you say a lot. So mm -hmm. um, I promise I won't be bored. But um, okay. I guess uh, what I'm curious about the most when it comes to birds 
is what you just mentioned, which is training. We'll get to some of your individuals and we'll mm-hmm. talk about some species uh, along the way here. But mm-hmm. how do you train a bird? And do you ever do any um, free flight type stuff? I know you said you do shows. Talk mm-hmm. to me about that process. Yeah, cool. I love this topic. Um, so, you know, I think I've mentioned before, I do work with a lot of parrots. So I work with 15 different recognized species of parrots. There are a couple hybrids thrown in there, which can't be recognized as a species because they're hybrids. They're given common names. So if you're considering hybrids, I work with about 18 different parrots. I can't say species. Um, well, 18 different types of parrots, I should say. Um, But in terms of training, it can definitely be very challenging um, from a behavioral perspective because we're talking about, for the most part, an animal in terms, at least with the the birds that I work with, an animal that could fly away or leave you very easily. You know, that's what they're adapted for, um, to either run away really quickly or to fly. And so the goal is to keep them with you at all times. So I just think that bird trainers have this like incredible challenge. I mean, I feel like we're up there with marine mammal trainers where these animals are so well adapted to be able to make decisions and just leave instantly. We talk a lot with certain animals about that fight or flight response and with birds, especially um, prey species like the ones that I work with, they can so easily take off if they're spooked by something. So, you know, we have to make sure that we have, we're forming really strong bonds with them in order to keep them with us. We are their safety blanket. And so what we do is we use positive reinforcement training and we can dive, you know, deep into operant conditioning and the different types of, or the different methods and things like that. But the one that we really do focus on a lot in my department is positive reinforcement. Um, and so, you know, this is a topic where we're saying we're going to give an animal something for doing something that we like. So anytime they do something we like, we give them something that they like in return. And this helps us form those strong relationships with them. And then like going back to like what I said before, being their safety blanket, they're going to want to be with us because they know that we not only have the good treats, but we have a really well-established relationship with them. It's not always just about the food and what they're getting to stay near us. Um, And then, you know, we can definitely go into detail about, you know, all the different types of behaviors that we train. But basically in terms of the, the, you know, where we start is just with that relationship building and making sure that they're comfortable, having a good idea of their behavioral history and their body language, all of that goes into those, you know, first steps of training any animal really, but particularly the birds that I work with. That's really cool. Um, I love that. So, and you stopped giving me a look like, was that good enough? I promise. You're good. You're good. Relax. Um, yeah, no. So tell me, tell me, tell me about, uh, some of the more specific, uh, behaviors that you train. Um, whether yeah. you want to go through all different birds or whether you just want to pick, like, I know that you said you work with pied crows and I know that they're yes. like brilliant. So maybe yes. just tell me <laughs> something about that. Yeah, sure. I'll definitely talk a whole lot about my buddy, Russell Crow, the one and only. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So Russell, I adore this bird. He's an African pied crow. I've been in his life almost from the very beginning. We got him when he was about, I want to say like six weeks old. We did get him from a breeder. Um, 
our department, you know, I can go later and maybe into a little history about how our department kind of formed, but there was kind of this push to have this free flight bird show in our future. We had a lot of parrots for a really long time. We were like, you know, we want to transition into something maybe a little bit more broader, use a lot of different species of birds, not just focus on citizens. Um, and so we acquired this crow. He was kind of our, he was a crow, but he was our guinea pig, quote unquote, <laughs> for how we were going to make this transition. And I've heard people say, like years after I started training him, that training a, a corvid is really not for a novice trainer. It's it's a, a bird that an advanced trainer really takes on. And I was 100% a beginner novice trainer when I started working <laughs> with this bird. So that was just such a big challenge for me. Um, thankfully, I did have someone who was working with me around that time, and she had a lot more training experience than me and was teaching me a lot. But I was learning with this bird that I just had, I had no idea what I was in for. And so throughout my experience with him, he's taught me so much. I mean, I hope that I've taught him a lot too, but he's taught me more than I think I've taught him. But, so you know, why, we, why <laughs> let me interrupt for a second. Why is yeah. it that the, why is it that a crow is not a good uh, beginner bird for a trainer? Well, a lot of people just say they're, they're so intelligent and, um, that you really have to be able to make decisions really quickly when you're working with them, or you have to be able to go into a training session with a really, really clear picture of what's going to happen. And I think with a novice trainer, it's just, you kind of can't really, there can't be any margin for error in the very beginning. So an advanced trainer will be able to make decisions kind of mid-session on what should be done, how we can really quickly change the environment to set the bird up for success. And a lot of times a beginner trainer just won't, won't have those skills quite yet. I mean, it's certainly something that they can work up to, but it's nothing. You don't have the right tools in your toolbox, essentially. And I certainly didn't when I first started with Russell. So I made so many mistakes in the very beginning. And I'm very grateful for the fact that I made those mistakes early on. And I've certainly learned from them. But I always say that Russell is the bird that turned me into a, a good trainer. I wouldn't say I'm, you know, the best trainer, but he's he's definitely given me those skills. He's taught me how to think fast, how to go into a training session with a plan. Um, that plan almost never goes according to how you have scheduled it. So a lot of times you really have to be able to make those quick decisions and you have to be able to increase your criteria and relax your criteria. There's really kind of like, it's like an, it is science. I mean, behavior is science, but there's also like an art to it. And you, you have to be able to understand it and practice it. And, you know, doing that with a Corvid in the very beginning is just such a challenge. And when I, when I heard that, I was actually at a conference where I heard that from of uh, this leader in our industry, Steve Martin. He said, you know, Corvids are not for novice trainers. And I was like, huh, that's why I struggled with Russell so much in the beginning there. So, um, but I mean, since then, we've done a lot of really cool training with him. I mean, he's recall trained, which a lot of birds are. So it just means he flies to my hand on cue or flies down to a perch on cue. We've worked on A to Bs in our show arena where he just flies from point A to point B. So whether that's a perch on the stage to the top of the bleachers and back down, um, he's learning to play nice with others. It's It doesn't really happen. 
happen very well. So he's not <laughs> ready for our shows quite yet. So that's another challenge is I'm the only person who can work with him free contact. So everybody else can only work with him through protected contact. And we've had to kind of modify how we work and handle with him based on that sole fact. You know, he gets created through protected contact and brought out onto exhibit protected contact. And it's a big challenge, but these are all the things that we've learned with our good friend Russell Crowe, all these problems that we've learned to solve based on his behavior. So really, we're just understanding his behavior a little bit better and then matching that with the training skills that we've developed over the years. Um, I've taught him how to paint. So he is trained to swipe a paintbrush on a canvas and then we're able to sell those paintings, you know, to raise money for conservation efforts. I've also... Um, trained in the very beginning we were working with my colleague on voluntary injection training where he'll stick his head uh, through his cage bars for head scratches so he's not only ever just motivated for food it's usually for some form of affection or love or attention and he loves head scratches so he would hold still for head scratches while we poked him with we were using a toothpick in the beginning and then we of course work up to a needle um so that was really amazing to work on that. And of course, it's really important training. Um, and oh, what else have I done with Russell? Oh, just like so much problem solving. He's such a problem child, but <laughs> we've, we've, been, we've been making some good steady progress. So That's very cool. And how long have you been working with Russell now? So he actually just had his sixth hatch day in June. So six years that I've been working with Russell. That's so, incredible. Yeah. So tell me, yeah. what does it feel like knowing that you are the human in that bird's <laughs> life that can, can be, you know, free contact? Oh my God, it's crazy. It's, it is really weird. I, I kind of go back to what I was saying before, where sometimes I wonder if I'm making the right decisions and the best decisions for these animals. And I think all the time about what our birds think when we leave at the end of the day. Like, do, where do they think that we go? And, you know, like, we are just, we're their people. And for a lot of our parrots, they have multiple different people that they, you know, take care of them and that love them and everybody loves Russell but yeah like you said I'm the only one that can work with him free contact and I I feel like you know that's a big weight on my shoulders because I understand the needs of a corvid they're a highly intelligent highly social species and if I'm the only person that can work with him free contact then I need to make sure that I'm providing him with what he needs. And so, so yeah, it's, it's basically just a big weight on my shoulders, but I, I love it. I mean, obviously I feel really honored. There <laughs> and, we go. I was waiting for the yeah. positive part of this too. <laughs> I, I, I was thinking you would say, oh, I love it so much. It's so sweet. And yeah, weight on the shoulders yeah. is fair though. And that's real. And I, I think that, yeah. you know, one of the things that's important for people to realize is that, um, you know, you love your animals, but also it's hard sometimes and and yeah it's yeah it's kind of like being a parent or whatever so i i get yeah. it yeah no that makes sense Absolutely. that's very cool um <laughs> so you keep talking about your 15 but really 18 parrots and <laughs> yeah. um and i believe the word you used was citizen is that correct am i saying that correctly? yes oh look yes. at me being all smart and sciencey wow, does that good just for mean you. parrot <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah so that it's just kind of the family name okay cool mm -hmm. it's just how how the the you guys you guys you cool kids make it make it sound better citizen yes. i like that all right Citizine. cool starts so, with a p too 
Oh, okay. Nice. Nice. Yeah, even fancier. <laughs> so tell me about your citizens. Are they good citizens? Oh, bad citizens. Oh, I, wow. That I was apologize. a really good one. No, I loved it. <laughs> I'm going to use that one later. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah, no, I. So the parrots are really interesting. And I will talk a little bit about our parrot shows. We've been doing shows for a long time, and they do feature mostly our parrots. The uh, shows that I was talking about that will hopefully, you know, show off Russell are kind of plans for the future as we develop a show that's maybe a little bit more focused on some carn- carnivorous species that we have, which I can also talk about in a bit. But our parrots are just, they're very actually similar to Russell in the sense where they out in the wild have really complex social structures. And a lot of individuals or a lot of the species, not all, are monogamous out in the wild. So they do form really tight, strong bonds with uh, other, you know, birds, other individuals. And so a lot of times that translates onto their relationships with humans. And so it's very fulfilling. I mean, I started as an intern at Southwick Zoo back in 2011, and I always thought that I wanted to work with primates, but I fell in love with the parrots in that department. They only had three at the time, and I just, I thought they were the coolest. And so I came back and I was able to work seasonally with the parrots and just build my relationship with the Strictly Ambassador bird flock and they're they're so charismatic and they just they're very kind of attention seeking because naturally that's that's what they do out in the wild is they're just constantly trying to fulfill those social needs so so they're a lot of work and I love them a lot of the per- the parrots that we have in our flock though were former pets and um that's a big challenge. And so in our shows, we talk a lot about the natural behavior of parrots. And we want people to know that these birds are not supposed to, you know, naturally be sitting inside cages in someone's house talking and singing and doing all these funny things or bouncing. You know, there's a reason why parrots do that. And we want to really send that message. We want to make sure people understand that if they do choose to have one as a pet, you really have to have a very specific type of lifestyle. Um, They require, they're like, they're like a two-year-old forever. They live for such a long time and they're so smart and they require so much more than the average household can provide. So We really try to send that message in our shows, but what I'm really proud about what we've done is we've taken so many former pets. For the longest time at the zoo, we were getting so many inquiries. Um, You know, I have this Maleclectus parrot. I have this you know, blue crowned conure. I have these sun conures that I need to get rid of. And for a while we were taking them in because we had the space. At this point, we don't have any space. But what we've done is we've been able to take these former pets and turn them into ambassadors for their species. And so we oftentimes have to start from scratch because I'm not saying the birds come damaged, but they come with some really weird learned behaviors. You know, some like to sit up on shoulders where they can be really uncomfortably close to our face. Some try to bite hands when hands are presented because people didn't quite respect their body language and, you know, taught them to bite their hand. And so we have to retrain them from the very beginning. And I've been able to do that with all of our uh, parrots. And that has also, you know, given me so much as a trainer and taught me so much. But 
we started from scratch with a lot of these birds and we've, we kind of see what they have to offer over time. We train some really fun behaviors with them and our shows, you know, we talk about, we have a bird climbing a rope to show off how agile they are and show off their zygodactyl feet. Hey everybody, it's time for Interrupting John. I just wanted to duck in here quick and explain what zygodactyl feet are. Zygodactyl feet are when birds have two toes facing forward and two facing backwards. This helps with perching birds to stay on their perch and also grasp the branch as they move around on it. Interestingly, it's the first and fourth toe that is facing backwards and the second and third digit that are facing forward. All right, back to the interview. We have a military macaw that recycles a plastic water bottle to talk about how we can keep the planet clean. We have a blue-crowned conure and a blue-and-gold macaw who collect dollar bill donations that uh, then, go, you know, straight out of visitors' hands into a donation bin. And then that money actually goes right towards blue-throated macaw conservation. And so we really have used these former pets to send this really important message about these wild animals. And then we're also able to, you know, literally financially support some really important parrot conservation projects. So I, I love that we've been able to do that. I love parrots <laughs> and it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. What, uh, what kind of parrot conservation orgs do you, uh, support? So we support a parrot conservation program called Civil Association Armonia, and we support their blue-throated macaw project. So this organization is located right in uh, eastern Bolivia, and what they've done is they've created two nature reserves. And inside those nature reserves, they actually place artificial nest boxes out in the trees to facilitate blue-throated macaw conservation. Blue-throated macaws are critically endangered. There's only a between like 300 and 350 individuals remaining in the wild. And so through this program, you're able to purchase nest boxes that they place out in the wild and they monitor them and send you all the data and send you updated, you know, uh, pictures on how the chicks are developing, if there are chicks in your nest box. And so we've been supporting them since I want to say 2014. And we've purchased over 30 nest boxes at this point. Um, and we've had multiple baby macaws fledged from nest boxes that we've sponsored. And this is all through, you know, these donations that we get in our shows with our ambassador birds who actually collect the money on their own. So it really just kind of all comes full circle. And it's it's an incredible process. Just this year, 2020, we had three baby macaws fledged from a nest box in the Laney Rickman Reserve in Bolivia. So that's been really rewarding and we love supporting them. Very, very cool. That's really awesome. Um, so then yeah. let's move on for a moment from your citizens. I'm still so proud that I know that word now uh, <laughs> to your <Yes>. um, <laughs> carnivorous birds. Yes. Yeah. So I one bird that's really worth talking about and mentioning are our red legged Sariemas. Have you ever heard of them before? I have not. Okay, so I actually hadn't heard of them either before I started working with them at the zoo. Um, I feel like a lot of ambassador keepers do work with them nowadays because they do make a great education animal in, you know, animal shows. Uh, but they are another carnivorous bird in South America. 
they're actually a descendant from the largest apex predator in South America um, during the Cenozoic era, so that's pretty cool. They only have one other family member. It's called the black-legged Sariema, so they're really not related to anything else. They're just kind of their own unique breed, and this is, like I said, a carnivorous bird. They have a unique way of killing their prey, so they usually will slam it up against a stone or a rock to kill it and stun it and then swallow it, which is really, (laughs) really attractive. Um, And so our male red-legged Sariema, his name is Pongo. He's trained to do this behavior with a rubber snake because out in the wild, they'll kill all sorts of smaller prey, including some reptiles and snakes. And they're known to kill venomous coral snakes as well, which is really cool. Um, But he's trained to do this. And so He's just the coolest bird. I mean, he was really well. We didn't we didn't have him since he was a chick. He was just really well socialized when he was younger before he came to us. And so he's just so curious. He'll walk around on his exhibit and just kind of do his thing. And people will just look at him and be like, huh, I've never seen that before. And if we're up there cleaning, you know, we'll tell people all about him. And they just have so many questions because he just walks around with this big, like, kind of zest for life and curiosity. We kind of joke that he's a dog trapped in a bird's body. <laughs> he's just the coolest thing. Um, and so, you know, we last year I decided, you know, we don't even need a show with all of these carnivorous birds. We can just have a 20 minute Pongo show and it'll just be the coolest thing ever. So we brought Pongo down to the show arena and I just kind of let him walk around and do his thing and explore the show arena while I talked about him and interacted with the public and let them ask questions. And it was honestly like one of the coolest shows I've ever done at the zoo. It was so much fun. I would just give Pongo the snake. He would grab it and slam it up against something to show it off. People thought it was so cool. Um, he can just, yeah, he just, he holds his own that one. I'm, I'm honestly a little jealous. He's just, (laughs) he's so cool. Yeah. So, so we have him. And then, um, I also take care of Eurasian Eagle owls. They're actually sort of exhibit only birds. We don't do any presentations with them. Um, I have not really done too much handling with owls in general, a little bit here and there from people that I know that have them, but I have heard that they're just really difficult. They're very challenging birds, especially if you don't, if they're not hand reared. So we don't do presentations with our owls, but it certainly is cool to still, you know, talk about them, kind of do informal presentations in front of their exhibit and stuff like that. And we also have a laughing kookaburra. And this, this is, she's probably one of my favorites. I actually don't even know that she's a she. We kind of just say that. They're not super easily sexually dimorphic. You can't super tell them apart, males from females. So um, I actually hand-raised her a couple years ago, three years ago now at this point. And that's that's kind of a long story, but she was a, a surprise, a surprise challenge that was kind of just bestowed upon me and I just had to figure out how to raise a <laughs> young kookaburra. You, uh, you, you like know you what question is coming. How do you get an unexpected kookaburra? Come on now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll, okay. I'll tell the full story. So, <laughs> so our kookaburras actually had a clutch of three in 2017. Uh, these are our 
kookaburras in the zoo that were on exhibit. Our department actually didn't take care of them at the time, still don't take care of them, but they had chicks. And I kind of just joked around with our head hoofstock keeper saying, oh, wouldn't it be cool if like we raised one for our shows? And you know, we both kind of brushed it off. It was kind of just a joke. But over, you know, the course of the next week or so, one of the kookaburras unfortunately had passed away, just wasn't getting enough food. I don't know if there was a an issue early on. And there was another one that was developing really well. And then the second one was just not at quite the same level as the other one. Probably being one of them was being favored by the parents. The other one was just really malnourished and just not developing very well. And so that same host dot keeper came up to me like uh, this random day and said, yeah, so I think that you should take this kookaburra. It is very malnourished and I don't think it's probably, it's probably not going to survive if the parents raise it. So you should take it and raise it and see if you can see what you can do. (laughs) I was kind of just thrown for a loop. I had never done that before. Um, Nobody at my facility had ever done it either. So I'm lucky that I know a couple people at other facilities who gave me lots of really great information. I gathered all the information and like over the course of three hours throughout my day. And then at the end of the day, we went in, we pulled her from the nest, we put her right in an incubator. And I just had this really malnourished kookaburra chick that I had to just try to keep alive. And so it was a, it was a really crazy task, but I, I did it. <laughs> Somehow That's I awesome. did it. I, I remember, oh, thank you. I remember driving home with her. I took her home with me just so I could monitor her overnight. Driving home with her in an incubator and this massive hailstorm hits Menden and I'm driving down the street, can't see two inches in front of me. I have this really like vulnerable bird, this little chick in my back seat in an incubator. I'm just dying to get home to plug it in and make sure she's okay. And it was just a disaster. It was a crazy day. And, you know, over the course of the next few weeks, I was just feeding her, just kind of mirroring what the parents were feeding the other one. So I was kind of lucky in that sense, uh, giving her some extra nutritional supplements that our veterinarian recommended. And, she just kind of developed over time. And it was this awesome starting, you know, I was able to train her from the very beginning, which was, you know, I was grateful that I had a, a lot of training skills at that point and could kind of teach her to fly to my hand pretty early on when she was fledging. But it was such a cool experience. And so Kinta is now three years old and thriving and she's awesome. That's amazing. <laughs> so you said uh, before we started recording that you're getting married soon, correct? Yes. Well, first I am. of all, congratulations. Second Thank of all, you so much. does he know what he's getting into? That at any <laughs> point, a random bird may just be brought yeah. home. <laughs> oh my God, absolutely. So we actually met at the zoo. Okay. Uh, nice. So he's he's very very familiar with my <laughs> life and my passions, and he's very supportive. But yeah, he. He totally just at this point doesn't really ask questions. <laughs> I could show up with something and it would just, you know, it just is what it is. <laughs> hey, babe, there's a, there's an emu in the uh, in the, the bathroom tonight. Oh, OK, thanks. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a dream. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Very cool. So he's yeah. a keeper as well then or does he do others? He's a, well, he's a keeper, but not a zookeeper. <laughs> 
He's it. No, he's like the <laughs> keeper to me. You know. Okay, bad joke. Um, yeah. Thank you anyway. for topping my bad joke earlier. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. No, he's not a keeper. He actually just worked um, in the zoo doing some really general work, uh, parking stuff like that. We were younger, and then he was doing a little bit with exhibit design, and then he kind of moved on to other things in school and stuff. So. Gotcha. So yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I don't know if you saw it, but when you said he's a keeper, I not only missed the joke, but I got so excited that there was some type of keeper that I didn't know existed. And I was like, oh, I need oh to interview. God. Oh, never mind. Just a bad joke. Just uh, it's oh, been a, It has been it a long been. day. <laughs> oh, no, I totally feel you. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, man. So um, along with these smaller birds that you're taking care of, you guys have some large birds as well, right? Some, some emus, yeah. I believe, right? Yeah. A little bit of poking around. Tell me about your emus. Yeah, so we actually have six this year, um, and we usually get them uh, from another facility, and they're pretty young, and we help to raise them, and then we send them back. Um, so I'm only going to be taking care of them for the next few weeks, actually, and we do get new ones every year. So... Um, I mean, I don't know. Hopefully we get them again next year. But this was kind of a this was a me thing this year. I just I was like, I want to take care of the emus. I would love to do some on site, uh, you know, some informal education with them within the zoo. Uh, It would be great to just do little little pop up keeper talks in their exhibits and things like that. And so I was also like, I really just want to train an emu, too. I think that would be great to add add to my list, you know. So we started training them from the very beginning. I mean, they're pretty small and they're out, out in a big open habitat. So in the beginning, we were just training them to go inside of a house at night where they can stay, you know, far away from any potential predators. If anything's wandering around the zoo, we didn't want them to be exposed or vulnerable. So we were training them to just go inside their house. And that was pretty easy in the beginning. They're pretty food motivated for their pellets. So it was kind of just a matter of placing the food inside at night. They would follow it right in. And over time, they started to just kind of follow us around. Emus are just big goofballs. I mean, they're <laughs> they're the funniest things. They, I was in the exhibit the other morning. It was first thing. We actually started a, a Zufari drive through at Southwick's this year because of everything with the pandemic. So we have two days a week where visitors are just driving through the zoo. Uh, so it's kind of challenging. The keepers have to get most of their cleaning and everything done before 11 o'clock, which is a little crazy for some keepers, not so much my department. But So I'm in there early in the morning taking care of the emus, getting everything ready. It was kind of like a brisk morning. It was a little cooler and they had a lot of energy. And I just went to go change their waters. And before I could make my way in, I noticed that they just started doing laps and they just started running back and forth and back. And I mean, it's a pretty big space. So they're going they're they're just running like back and forth, sometimes in circles around trees. And it was crazy. They just they had so much energy. They're they're just they're just big goofballs. I mean, I don't really know how else to explain them They're, I mean, working with crows and parrots and then working with an emu they're they're not quite as smart i mean they're they're intelligent <laughs> but they're just not quite at the level of a corvid or a citizen so yeah they're they're really interesting i mean we did some target training with them and kind of figured out what they liked for enrichment they really loved their kiddie pool in the summer they could go and relax in there and cool off but yeah, very, very different. I mean, very large terrestrial bird that doesn't fly. So I don't know. They're they're really cool. Definitely. They're uh, at the Virginia Zoo. Um, there is a 
an emu named Lester. And uh, Lester. Lester likes to follow me around when I'm there. And he's just kind of, I, I totally get it. He's a, a big old goofball and just kind of seems a little, little off, but in a, an adorable way. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I could, I could see that. That makes sense. So how do your, your emus feel about uh, peacocks? Oh my God. Did, how did you know? <laughs> Rastafari knows all. Either that or I look at Rastafari knows all. One or the other. Okay, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, we have some roaming peacocks in the zoo. I feel like that's kind of common. You see a lot of zoos that have those roaming peacocks. And we have, I want to say, like three or four of them. Um, And there's this one that... He just sticks around. And of course, it's probably just because he likes their diet and they're free roaming. So they're just going to go wherever they have access to where they can get the best food. And it makes sense. We give them, you know, the emus actually are on a specific ratite diet, but they they also get some game feed, some, you know, different type of pellets. And I just think that the peacock likes it. And so he hangs out in there and steals some of their food. And to be honest, he's like not really that nice. <laughs> And people always are like, oh, look at that's so funny, a peacock who just wants to be an emu. But it's like, no, I think he, he's pretty much just saying, like, this is my food. We actually had to start giving them multiple food bowls because the peacock wasn't sharing the <laughs> emu's food. <laughs> so we were like, listen, buddy, back off. Like, we want you to eat, too. But the emus need to eat this food. So, yeah, we split up we split up their food into multiple, you know, dishes so that nobody was getting beat up. But he yeah, the. They don't really like him that much, but he sticks around. And so he, they, I don't know. They're not really bothered by much, though. So, you know, he just does his thing. Every now and then I, I had to, um, you know, whisk him away a little bit <laughs> to leave them alone. But, yeah, they, he's a funny little peacock. He does his thing. He doesn't care. <laughs> That's hilarious. Are there any other uh, carnivorous birds that you wanted to mention? Um, that I wanted to mention, I feel like I've, I feel like I've mentioned at least all the ones that I work with. I mean, I'd love to one day work with a vulture, but that's, that's not really (laughs) anything I work with right now. Gotcha. Dream bird. Yeah. Yeah. Vultures are really cool. Yes, they are. Yes. So, um, I know that your zoo has a nonprofit called Earth. So tell me a little bit about that. Yes, I would love to. So Earth is a nonprofit that was founded by one of the family members, actually. So it's about it's five different siblings that run the zoo, plus their mom. So uh, one of the siblings, Betsy Brewer, started Earth. It's a nonprofit organization, and their main goal is to promote education, conservation and research. And we do that through Southwick Zoo. So she started Earth in 1999, and she basically started like this little education hub within the zoo, but she also started a zoo mobile program. And this is kind of the, the nonprofit education center that actually goes out and does outreach at schools and libraries and things like that. A lot of zoological facilities do that as well. Ours just happens to be through a nonprofit uh, founded by Betsy. So Earth um, has kind of bled into Southwick's as well. So, you know, the bird department is not necessarily a part of Earth, but we are kind of partnered with Earth through our education programs, our shows, and the conservation projects that we support. So uh, Earth also 
sponsors so many different conservation projects as well. So through Earth, for example, at our zoo, you can participate in a rhino encounter and you can go and have, you know, an experience with our two female adult white rhinos, Thelma and Louise, and you can learn all about rhino conservation and, you know, the poaching problem that we have, uh, particularly in South Africa. You learn a lot about it. You get to meet them. You get to stand, you know, close to them where you can actually even touch them through these big concrete barriers. Uh, they're like big dogs. They're amazing. They're so cool. And Betsy's really, really passionate, particularly about rhino conservation. And it's really cool to be a part of that. And it's really cool to work for um, people like that who are, you know, there for who have similar passions and want to spread that message about conservation. And that kind of empowers me to continue along the path that I'm going down with all the bird conservation projects that I'm interested in supporting. And I'll, you know, go to Betsy every year and say, what do you think about this program? Can we sponsor, you know, can we contribute to this this year? And, you know, she's always really on board with that. And I really like that she's given me an opportunity to make those decisions and do that research kind of on my own. And then, you know, we can work together and collaborate and figure out what we want to do. So, so Earth is really is a really great program. And I have a lot of respect for Betsy and what she does and how she's, you know, kind of led and inspired me to do what I do in the bird department. It's been very rewarding. Very cool. And is there a website where people can go and check out Earth if they want to? Yes. So if people are interested in Earth, they can actually go to Earth, E-A-R-T-H-L-T-D, which obviously is for earthlimited.org. So all types of information on there. You can look uh, look a little more in depth into some of the conservation projects that we sponsor and some of the educational program that we're doing. And we're doing a lot of different programming this year, lots of virtual stuff because of everything that's going on with the pandemic has kind of limited our opportunity to do some educational outreach in classrooms and things like that that we're normally used to. So we have a lot of different cool opportunities out there for, you know, educators Nice. Very cool. Um, So sticking with the conservation theme for a second, uh, is there anywhere else? I'm just going to throw open the floor. Any other organizations or anything that you want to mention, um, either that you're a part of or just that you you support or like? Oh, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, another one that I do really enjoy because we do have a great green macaw at Southwick's and we did for a little while support some great green macaw conservation through Earth. Um, But there's this great conservation program called the Macaw Recovery Network, and they do a lot of work with great green macaws and scarlet macaws. Um, And so that's a great program to look into and support. And they do a lot of artificial nest box type stuff, uh, similar to what Association Armonia does. Uh, That's a really great parrot conservation organization. Uh, We also, through Southwick's, have been partnered with uh, a program called the American Kestrel Partnership, and they were uh, a program that's put on by the Peregrine Fund. And basically, they just kind of encourage people to participate in what they call citizen science, where people are or they're using kind of your everyday average Joes who are setting up nest boxes in fields, areas where there are prime kestrel habitat to help understand the declining populations of American kestrels in North America, because basically these populations are 
are declining and nobody really knows why. So they're trying to compile a lot of data to figure out why we're seeing these uh, decreasing trends in populations. And so I got, you know, Betsy's support to sponsor this project through Earth a couple years ago. And we have two nest boxes set up at uh, Daniel's Farm in Blackstone, Massachusetts, which is only about 10 minutes from South Lake Zoo. And so for a while, we were monitoring the nest boxes. Unfortunately, we didn't have any um, any kestrels using our boxes. But for the American Kestrel Partnership, they always say that no... Um, a zero is a valid number. Essentially, it does still give them data. You know, we're not seeing kestrels in these areas. That's good for them to know. Right. So it, it's still cool, even if you're not actually, if you're not, if you don't have chicks in your nest boxes, it's still cool to feel like you're a part of something and really anybody can do it. So if people are really interested in conservation and just doing something kind of just for fun and they want to feel like they're being either a part of conservation, looking into the American Kestrel Partnership is a really great route. It's usually one that I like to direct people towards mm -hmm. very cool thank you and now it is yeah. time for the rasafari poop story so poop story. oh yes it is time <laughs> you knew it was coming so go ahead yes. and hit me with at least one if you've got more i'll take them okay well i i feel like i have i could probably mention two so um, you know, I was talking about Kinta. It, well, first of all, I mean, I, I made a joke earlier. I work with birds, so there's there's poop everywhere all the time. <laughs> and I feel like it's kind of just second nature at this point. It comes with the job. And they always say that, like, oh, if you get pooped on by a bird, it's good luck. And while that might be true, I feel like it's kind of just what people say to make themselves feel better in the moment. And that's fine. We're going to go with that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so there was this one time that I was absolutely, I was driving to the zoo with Kinta the very small kookaburra chick in my car um I would just kind of have her in the passenger seat I'd drive super slow and she'd just be in a little you know container and she so what's really interesting about a lot of bird species is that they're actually not going to poop in the nest because they don't want to soil the nest lots of disgusting bacteria can grow if that happens and so it's amazing. I never saw it in action, but I was able to see it a lot with Kinta. She, when she was growing, she'd just kind of lift her butt up in the air and push it just to the corner of her bowl and then just projectile poop all over the incubator and all over the place. And it was really gross. And I was just taking a video of her one time in my car before we started to drive to the zoo and she just, she started to do it. She backed her butt up and it's just kind of funny because in the video I'm like, oh no, please, no, no, stop. And she she just pooped all over me. I mean, her butt, I, I should have turned her around, but her butt was facing me and she just projectile pooped all over me. And so that's how I started my work day. <laughs> I, you know, cleaned it off as best I could and drove to work because why clean the bird poop off before you go to the place where you get pooped on all the time? So, so that's, that's one. And then another really funny one I have is, um, in our bird shows, we kind of switch back and forth between who is on the microphone and who is handling a bird. So I do a part with a bird and then I leave and my coworker comes out and does a part. So I had done a part with a bird. My coworker went out. She went to put our female eclectus parrot down on the perch. I was backstage and she kind of hesitated for a second. And I just, I heard 
I heard it, and she, this female eclectus pooped directly on her hand, like the hand that she needed to, you know, put in her treat pouch and feed this bird, and, you know, the other hand was going to be working the microphone, and so she just pooped all over her, and, you know, on the mic in front of all these people, (laughs) and so, you know, I had to go out there, give her a paper towel in the middle of this bird show, and have her wipe it off her hand, and so this is just the average day in the life of a bird keeper. Like I said, there's just poop everywhere all the time so there are your two poop stories (laughs) amazing well thank you for taking the time to do this i really appreciate it absolutely i loved being here thank you so much and i do want to say i think what you do with this podcast and with your instagram is so awesome i just had some time to think about it and as i was kind of listening it's so great having a champion for zoos and zookeepers and you know it i feel really appreciated and i feel like a lot of other people feel appreciated and it's it's one thing for people to be champions of zoos if they work at a zoo but it's another thing to have somebody who is maybe really into zoos advocating for zoos as well and i think it kind of sends an even stronger message of course i can be biased but you know having kind of an an i don't mean to call you an outsider but somebody who's not actually working in the fields just in love with it and loves animals and just wants to share the message. I think that's awesome. So thank you so much. Thank you for saying that. That really, (laughs) really means a lot to me. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, I'm not going to lie. I'm not always the best at self-promotion. And so I wondered at first if I should leave that last bit in there where Danny was complimenting me. But I decided that I wanted to because at the end of the day, I think it really shows exactly how amazing of a person Danny is. It was so sweet of her to take the time to lift me up at the end of that interview. So I'm just so grateful for her. You can check Danny out on Instagram for bird facts and for training info at D-A-N-I-P-O-I-R-I-E-R. And you can also go to the Bird Training and Enrichment at Southwick's Zoo page on Facebook. Also, for more information about the Earth organization she mentioned, check out www.earthltd.org. All righty. Remember, from here on out for the rest of this month... It's about to get spooky. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.